Lord, we thank you for your church, God, the people, to, to be able to come together and, and worship you and uh, glorify you and, and seek you in your word. God, I pray that you would stir hearts um, through this time, Lord, that you would just inspire us and motivate us, um, God, in, in our walk with you and our journey and adventure with you, Lord, so much that I believe that, that you want to say through this, I pray that you would um, just really meet us where we're at. Uh, fill me with the Spirit, fill all of us with the Spirit, and, and just minister to each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, there's obviously different people in this room. Oh, good call, yeah. I'm Rusty. If you don't have a Bible, um, if you would like a Bible, we would love to put one in your hands uh, just so you can follow along. Know that what I'm saying isn't heresy. It's in the Word of God. We're following along in the Word of God, hearing uh, what he actually has to say. If you need a Bible, if you would just raise your hand real quick and we'll, we'll get you one. I literally forgot my Bible tonight. I had to have my wife bring it. So... Yeah, it was, it was, it was a close call. If you're good, no worries. Awesome. Uh, and if you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. You can take that home with you. All right. Thank you for the reminder. Little, little rusty. I usually have a, 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 a note here that says, pass out Bibles. Don't forget. Cause I keep forgetting. Anyways, uh, as I was saying, Everyone here has their own story, and different people are in uh, different places in their walk with the Lord. This message is more for those who have been walking with the Lord for a little while. Now, it will apply to anyone and everyone who desires to have a relationship with the Lord and has started that relationship with the Lord, but follow me along. You'll understand as we dive into the text a little bit. If, if you're one of those people that have been walking walking with the Lord for a long time. Again, this is more for you. Have you been walking with the Lord so long that it seems like forever? Like, like you've been walking with the Lord forever. All you know is Jesus. It's even hard for you to maybe recall uh, your testimony and when you got saved and what life was like before Jesus. Now, I want to bring you back to that time. Maybe in the beginning of that relationship, there was likely a time in most people's walk where in the beginning, we're so zealous, we're so passionate, we're ready to go anywhere and do anything for the sake of the gospel. And maybe that was you. And maybe that zeal and that passion led you to engage in this exciting adventure with the Lord. And he took you on a journey. And maybe that looked like some mission trips. Maybe that looked like like engaging in different ministries. Maybe that looked like you sharing the gospel with people that you never would have thought you'd be sharing the gospel with. And that's what it was like in the beginning. But then what happens? Sometimes the relationship, uh, it can grow a little dull. The adventures can begin to cease. Maybe it's been a long time and, and you've kind of settled down. And now you have a family and maybe you even have children and grandchildren and life has just slowed down a bit and part of the slowing down has affected your relationship with the Lord and there's not as much excitement, there's not as much zeal and you kind of can get to that place of, eh, my adventure was then, but it's not now. My, my adventure is, is, is over. I went on my journey, I've done the mission trip thing, I've done the ministry thing, but now my time is has come. It's time for me to retire from my adventure with the Lord. We're going to learn in this text about a specific individual. If you recall, we've been talking about Joseph week after week after week. In fact, we've been talking about him for the last couple months. Um, but now we're going to see there's a patriarch that's still alive that we haven't heard much about here and there, but not completely. It's been more focused on Joseph in this chapter. The focus is going to shift back to someone who's extremely important in this book, in the book of Genesis. And that would be Joseph's father, 
Israel or Jacob. Those names are interchangeable, and we've talked about that before. And what we're going to see with Jacob, if we, we, we recall his story, man, Jacob had an adventure with the Lord. He had a journey with the Lord. If you remember back in the beginning, Jacob's journey really started when he deceived his father to gain the birthright somewhat deceived Esau, but they already worked out their deal. And that led Jacob to flee from his brother because his mom told him that Esau was going to kill him. And the moment that he fled, the moment that he entered on his journey with the Lord, the Lord met him right where he was at and literally came to him and spoke to him. And we see Jacob, he goes to Laban, his uncle, to find a wife or two. Or four. And he's gone for about 20 years. And then God speaks to him again to come back to the promised land. When we look at Jacob's life, there's a lot of action going on. He's moving around constantly. He's never in one place for too long other than Laban with the 20 years. But the Lord is is doing a lot in his life. And ever since we've been focused on Joseph, it's like, what's happened with Israel? What's happened with Jacob? What's going on with him? He's kind of been... A little stagnant. He's 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 been in in one place for a long period of time, and there's doesn't seem to be a lot of excitement uh, with him and his journey with the Lord. It's almost like his journey ceased. And we could look at Jacob. Hey, he's an old man. He's probably about 130 at this point. It's like his time's over. His adventure is over. But as we'll see in this chapter. God thinks otherwise. God still has a journey for him. God still has an adventure for Jacob. He's got one last hurrah. Though we might assume Jacob, uh, his time is done. God says, no, no, no. Jacob's journey isn't over. Which brings me to the title of this teaching. The journey isn't over. The journey isn't over. As we said, Jacob had quite the journey in the beginning of his relationship with the Lord. But again, it's it's grown a little stagnant. Now we're going to see Jacob, though he's in the promised land, God is going to lead him on another journey to somewhere else, specifically Egypt. If you recall last teaching, remember, Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers and he was ultimately saving his brothers and his whole family from the seven year famine that plagued the entire land. So now God's using Joseph to bring the whole family to Egypt so that they'll be able to endure this famine and have the grain and the resources that they need to literally survive and be saved from this difficult time that's going on there in Canaan. Now, if you look in Genesis chapter 46, picking it up in verse 1, uh, I'll tell you ahead of time, I'm going to start off really slow, and we're not going to get through much in the beginning, probably the first half an hour, and then we'll speed it up, because you got like this genealogy, and it talks about all the different people that go with uh, with uh, Jacob to uh, Egypt, and we're, we're not going to talk too much about that. So when you see it's been 30 minutes and we're only in verse 4, it's okay. We will get through it. Uh, Genesis chapter 46, verse 1 says, So Israel took his journey. Israel, remember, another name from Jacob. Uh, we typically see, again, I want to point out that when Israel is referred to as Israel or when Jacob is referred to as Israel, it typically looks like it's when he's operating in faith. He's walking by faith, and that's what we see here. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So Israel starts on this journey. He's leaving, heading to Egypt, and he has this pit stop in Beersheba. But what we see with Israel, he's being referred to as Israel because he's operating in faith. Now, he needed a lot of faith to start on the journey that God called him to from the beginning. But now we see because this journey isn't over, this journey still requires faith. Which brings me to the first of five points. The journey still requires faith. Yes, the journey in the beginning requires faith, but the journey still requires faith. It takes faith to continue on the journey. 
He's been on journeys in the past, but it's been a while. He needs that rekindling of faith to continue on and do what God has called him to do. And he's on just that, a journey, just as the scriptures say. It's an adventure. It's a potentially life or death thing. Jacob probably doesn't even know if he's going to survive to get to Egypt. Can you say that about your relationship with the Lord? Is it an adventure? Is it a journey? Is it something that's, that's exciting or is it dull? Is it bland? Is it plain? Eh, I go to church and, and, and do the things that my parents taught me to do, but that's like the extent of my relationship with the Lord. If you have a boring Christianity, then you don't have the Christianity that God called you to. And I'll tell you right now, the Lord wants you to have an exciting walk with him. He literally has so many opportunities, so many works, even miracles maybe that he would like to show you. But if we look at our relationship with the lord or a walk of faith is just something bland is something uh it's the sunday thing it's the wednesday thing then we're going to miss out on this exciting adventure that he's called us to see he's called jacob to a journey he's called him to an adventure and it takes faith to trust the lord along that journey believing that he's going to bring us from point a to point b look what it says here So Israel took his journey with all that he had. He took everything and he'll uh, list the things later. We're talking family. We're talking servants. We're talking possessions. We're talking all these different things. He literally took all that he had and followed the Lord. It's not just him going by himself. No, he's putting complete faith. He's practicing full-fledged faith in the Lord. He's not just putting his life in the Lord's hands. He's putting his whole family's life in the Lord's hands, and he's taking them along this journey with him. Now look, it says he goes, he makes a pit stop. He goes to Beersheba and came to Beersheba. Now this is interesting. We see that Both Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father, they both went to Beersheba as well. And what's interesting about this is they both had encounters with God there. They both encountered the living God right there in Beersheba. Now... Jacob likely knows about these stories and these encounters that his grandfather and his father had with the Lord there. And if you remember, Abraham, he, he, he planted a tamarisk tree to, to represent the encounter that he had with God. And then, uh, and then Isaac, um, he built an altar there to, to kind of uh, pay attention to and, and, and honor this place that he had this encounter with the Lord. So again, Jacob likely knew this. He heard these stories and he's going to this place, place Beersheba to encounter God. To, to meet the living God, to gain the faith and encouragement that it's going to take for him to bring not just himself, but his whole family, everything he has to Egypt. And we'll see that's why he's here. He's there specifically to pursue God. Look what it says here. He comes to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. So he's reaching out to God. He's seeking God. Specifically, he's offering sacrifices to God. Why? Well, he wants to make sure that what he's doing is of the Lord. Okay? So Egypt was a a place that was synonymous with the world. And we'll talk about that later. We have to remember that there was a famine earlier in Genesis, back in Abraham's time. And he left the promised land to go to Egypt. It doesn't say that God told him to go to Egypt. And we see when Abraham went to Egypt because of the famine, he picked up someone very special by the woman of the name Hagar. And Hagar is the woman whom he had Ishmael with, which literally to this day made up the nation of Islam. So we see that this mistake that Abraham made in trying to fulfill this promise in his flesh and producing this nation that was enemies of God's people, even to this day, 
Jacob. He likely knows this story as well. So he's saying, all right, God, our only hope is to go to Egypt because there's food there. But I want to make sure that we're on the same page, that you're actually leading in this. So he offers a sacrifice so he might gain confirmation from the Lord. But I want to point out something specific in this journey of faith. It's not just a uh, I believe God's calling me here. No, no, no. We see that Jacob is practicing an active faith. He's engaging in faith. He's walking in faith. He's seeking the Lord in faith, specifically through the avenue of providing sacrifices. Along his journey, he's providing sacrifices for the Lord to encounter him, to engage with him. And the same thing goes for us. Along the journey, there's a requirement that we're to provide sacrifices, not like the sacrificial system, but there's things that God calls us to sacrifice along the journey. Second point, the journey still requires sacrifice. The journey still requires sacrifice. Now, we know when we come to the Lord, there's an element of sacrifice and the Lord doesn't doesn't hide this. He's very clear about this. I'll give you an example. In Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus specifically is talking about discipleship and the cost of discipleship. And look at what he says here. Luke chapter 14, verse 33 So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's what he says. We're all called to be disciples. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. He says, whoever is not willing to forsake all and follow me is not worthy to be my disciple. What is he saying? If you're not going to choose me first then you can't be my disciple. You got to truly make me God and Lord of your life. Not that you can't have other things and good relationships and all these things that the Lord wants to bless us with. But he says, no, you got to sacrifice everything that you think you want, you think you need. You got to focus on me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. When the Lord calls us from the beginning, he calls us to forsake all. And some of us, we get that in when we first come to the Lord, we realize, hey, hey, I got to sacrifice some relationships. There's certain friends that I can't be friends with anymore. There's certain activities or certain places or certain positions that I really shouldn't be a part of anymore. And in the beginning, we're ready. We're willing. We're, we're, we're okay to sacrifice all of those things to forsake all and follow Jesus. And sometimes we'll do it for a season and we forsook everything. And then the next season, we pick those things back up again. Those very things that we forsook, we pick back up again. And God's, hey, no, I called you to forsake all. That was a, a permanent thing. I, I, I didn't want you to pick these things back up again. I wanted you to sacrifice these things because I have something so much better for you. And you know, these are, this is one of those things that uh, prevents a lot of people from coming to the Lord. A topic like this, sacrifice. If you want to come to the Lord, he says, forsake all and follow me. It's like, no, I don't want to forsake all. Yeah, I want Jesus and I want heaven and I want blessings, but I still want to hold on to this immoral relationship. I still want to hold on to this sin that brings me so much comfort or this specific habit. Why? Because we think when the Lord calls us to forsake all, we think we're going to lose so much. And when we think about sacrifice in our lives, when you mention the word sacrifice, you think of what? Loss. What am I going to lose? But in God's economy, when we sacrifice to the Lord, we always gain. We don't lose. We always gain so much more than we'll ever lose. And the Lord is so clear about this. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, God calls us to do just that, to sacrifice ourselves to him. He's not saying literally put yourself on an altar. Okay, don't take any of this out of context. Follow me. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, meaning dedicating your whole heart, soul, life, mind, strength, everything to God. 
holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He says, that's our reasonable service. That's our reasonable act of worship or our reasonable response to the grace and love that Jesus Christ has bestowed on us. And then he says this, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is important that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God for us to find, for us to prove what is that good, perfect, acceptable will of God. It requires laying down our lives. It requires sacrificing. It requires forsaking all and following the Lord until we sacrifice, until we forsake all. We're not going to find the perfect will. We're going to find something less. The Lord wants us to find that perfect, good, pleasing will, that abundant life. But it takes losing our life. It takes forsaking certain things in our life. But when we do it, you never regret it. There's never been a sacrifice that I've made in my life to the Lord, whether it be time, effort, energy, whatever it is, that I regret it. Every single time there's something I end up gaining from it because that's God's economy. He doesn't call us to sacrifice because he wants all these things from us. No, no, no. He calls us to sacrifice because he wants all these things for us. And we see Jacob, he understands this. I'm going to sacrifice this thing to the Lord because I I, want to pursue the Lord. I want to engage in fellowship with the Lord. I want to specifically, as we'll see, hear from the Lord. Look at Genesis chapter 46, verse 2. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So we see in Jacob's pursuit of God along the journey of faith, he sacrifices to the Lord. He's active in his faith. And what happens? God shows up. God speaks to him. When we practice an active faith, when we're sincerely seeking the Lord, there's a promise in scripture. In James chapter four, verse eight, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When we're pursuing the Lord with an active faith, he will draw near to us. And we see that's exactly what happens to Jacob. He speaks to him. He's going to confirm to him the direction in this specific journey now the interesting thing is here is we haven't seen god directly speak to jacob uh since i believe genesis chapter 35 okay and we don't see jacob really pursuing the lord not that he wasn't and i'm not going to say that he wasn't but we don't have documented in scripture other than him praying for protection for his sons we don't see this diligent pursuit god may have spoken to jacob in that time period it's just not documented in scripture but we see the moment documented in scripture that jacob starts seeking the lord god answers him God meets him where he's at. See, there's certain times in our lives where God can tend to be silent. And we even see in scripture, there's certain reasons for God's silence. But most of the time, God's only silent because we're not seeking him. Because we're not asking to hear from him. Because we're not pursuing him in his word. And we see in this text specifically, again, as soon as Jacob starts seeking him, God starts speaking to him. And look at Jacob's response. God says, Jacob, Jacob. And look at how Jacob responds. He says, says, here I am. Jacob sought God. God showed up and Jacob was willing to do whatever God called him to do and go wherever God called him to go. There's so much in that response. Here I am, God. He's saying, I'm yours. Do with me what you will. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? I'm willing, Lord, to follow you. Which brings me to the third point. The journey still requires willingness. The journey still requires willingness. And I say still because Jacob, 130 years old, he's been walking with the Lord for, the, for a long time, but there's been a lack of excitement. Again, we can fall into this as well. In the beginning of our walk with the Lord, I remember for me personally, so passionate, so zealous, literally, God, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'll go wherever you call me to go. If you want me to be a missionary in Africa or South America, it, I don't care if it's in a, a Muslim country and I'm going to be persecuted for my faith, I'll go. I'm willing to do whatever. We get that zeal. 
We get that passion when we first come to the Lord. We're literally willing to do anything, to go anywhere for the sake of the gospel. But sometimes that can fade. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 24, you can write it down. It says, remain in that state in which you were called. Remain in that state in which you were called, meaning... When God first called you, when he first drew you near, maybe it was an altar call, a prayer in your room, a conversation with a friend, and he led you to the Lord, whatever it was, he says, remain in that state where you are called, that state of brokenness, that state of need, that state of dependence, that state of willingness. He says, remain there, stay there. Don't lose that. Don't lose that fire. Don't lose that zeal because it's not only necessary for the beginning of your journey. No, no, no. It's necessary to continue on in the journey. We see this common character quality of everyone that God seeks and God calls and that has an adventure with God in the Bible. And it's really one word, willingness, willingness. We see it with Isaiah. If you want to look at Isaiah chapter six, verse eight. Isaiah has this amazing encounter with the Lord, and there's so much here, but we're not going to get into it. I just want to point out something real quick. He has this encounter with God. He says, I'm undone. I'm unclean. I dwell with the people of, of, of unclean lips. And he's convicted because he's literally in the presence of God. He's saying, I should be dead right now in comparison to God's holiness and my unholiness. But we see something so amazing. In verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. God's looking for one man. He was looking for one person to radically shape and change a nation. And Isaiah, not out of pride, he was completely broken. He says, God, I'm willing. I'm willing. Here, here am I, send me. I'll, I'll go. I'll do whatever you want me to do because I had that encounter with you. I, 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 I encounter the living God, and because of that, I'm willing to do whatever you call me to do. Again, we see this willingness throughout the scripture. The disciples, that's all they had going for them. They weren't the best. They weren't the brightest. The Bible says they were foolish. They were weak. There's nothing special about them except one thing. God called them, and they answered. They were willing to follow the Lord. In Luke chapter 5, verse 5, we see this great example with four of them and the Lord calling them, specifically Peter, James, uh, John, and Andrew. In Luke chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus has this encounter. He's with Simon specifically. And it says, But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. The Lord called them to do something specific. And they questioned it. They weren't sure about it. But he says, nevertheless, even though I question this, even though I don't understand it, I'm willing to let down the net. I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing to do what you're calling me to do, regardless of of my understanding or lack thereof. I'll I'll do it. We'll let down the nets. And we see an amazing miracle happens in that text. And at the end of the story, it says they forsook all and followed Jesus because he was using that net as a symbolism. If you can take this one step, this one act of obedience, this one act of willingness, you can do it here you're going to be willing enough to to follow me and do whatever else i call you to do see the lord he just calls it he doesn't call us to be the mightiest the strongest all these great things he just asks that we'd be willing to do what he asks us to do if we're willing he will use you if you're willing to do what god calls you to do he will use you and he'll use you in mighty ways if you're not willing you're going to miss out You're going to rob yourself of the adventure that God has for you. There's a story in Mark chapter 4. Jesus, he takes the disciples on the boat. He calls them to get into the boat. They do. And he leads them into this storm. And they feel like they're going to die. But they learn something amazing about Jesus, that he's sovereign, that he has control over the storms, that he truly is God. They're brought to this next level in their relationship and understanding of the Lord's identity. But what Would we be reading if those disciples, when Jesus said, hey, get in the boat, they said, nah, I'm not coming. I don't want to get in the boat. What would have happened? 
we'd be reading about some different disciples. They would have missed out on the adventure that God called them to. It was just that willingness to get in the boat. I got something I want to show you. I got an adventure I want to take you on. But if you're not willing to step that foot in the boat, then you're going to miss out on the adventure. See, Jacob, he was willing. He says, God, I'm here. What do you want from me? Here I am. Genesis chapter 46, verse 3. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you, make of you a great nation there. So immediately the the Lord answers him and answers him with just reassurance. I am the God, the God of your father, the God that you've been hearing about, the God that's been blessing you, the God that met you way back when and confirmed different things to you. Yes, that's me. And you have no need to fear. Why? Because it says, do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make a great nation of you, because God is with you. He calls him to be fearless. Why? Because the journey still takes that. The journey still takes fearlessness. Fourth point, the journey still requires fearlessness. The journey still requires fearlessness. See, we got to remember, he's 130 years old. It's like there's no certainty practically that he's making it to Egypt. Okay, there's some fear connected there. And there's fear connected to really anything the Lord calls us to. He might call us to something very scary. He might call us to something very intimidating. But he says, there's no need to fear. Why? Because I'm with you. I got you. I'm here in this. I've called you to this. The Lord can often call us to fearful situations, but if we put our trust in Him, if we put our hope in Him, if we put our faith in Him, then we find that there truly is nothing to fear in the center of God's will. That's the safest place we could ever be. Now, (laughs) Pastor Chet, I remember... um, he was in Liberia for for a while, like six years. And when he got over there, he was called. He had been on a mission uh, trip there before. And, and literally shortly after he got there, bullets started flying. Literally, he's been shot out. All these different things were happening. There was uh, uh, there was an uproar and there's about 16 tribes and they were all fighting and killing each other just because they were of different tribes. Now, what had happened was when this war broke out, most of the missionaries left. Why? Because the bullets started flying and they were afraid. And Pastor Chet's like, I don't get this. Why would you, if God called you here, why would you leave? It's safer to be here with bullets flying past your head because you're in the center of God's will than if you leave and you're outside the center of God's will. Though it could be a scary place, though it's a scary calling when we're in the center of God's will, it's the safest place that we could ever be in the midst of the storm or of the trial or whatever it may be. And that's exactly what we see here with Jacob. That's the character quality that God's trying to produce in him, that fearlessness. And he says, God says in verse 3, I'm the God. The God of your father, do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. So we see this promise that was originally made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. It keeps being developed. We we start understanding the promise more and more and more, ultimately until Jesus comes on the scene. But as of now, we see God told him that he was going to make a great nation out, out of Abraham and all his descendants. But now the promise is evolving. Now we see that God's not just going to make them a great nation in the promised land. No, no, he's going to make them a great nation in Egypt and then bring them back to the promised land. So the promise, we're starting to understand it and how it's developing a little bit more. Now, you got to think uh, I, sorry, uh, Jacob is like questioning this. Wait a minute. The promise was the promised land that you would make us a great nation in the promised land. So there could be some confusion attached to that, but we see the Lord, his plan is perfect. And he's going to use all of these things as we'll discuss later. And though some of these things seem contrary to God's promise, we 
actually see that it's right in line with God's promise. And he even mentioned some of that in Genesis chapter 15, that he'll bring him to another nation and then bring him back. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 46, verse 4. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba and their sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So we see God brings him further assurance in this conversation that he has with him. He says, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. God is promising that he's going to be with Jacob along the journey. And that's where that fearlessness comes from. And that's where I want to make my fifth and final point. God is still in the journey with us. God is still in the journey with us. Regardless of what happens, regardless of what questions or doubts we may have, regardless of what trials or tribulations or circumstances just seem contrary to God fulfilling this specific promise that he made to me, we see the Lord will always be with us. He'll never forsake us. And because he's with us and he promises to always be with us, that gives us the courage, the strength, the motivation, everything needed to continue on the journey. And that's exactly what we see Jacob does. He hears from the Lord and now he arises. He gathers his family together, picking it up in verse 6. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. And went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his son's sons, his daughters and his son's daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. We see Israel or Jacob, he walks by faith and because of his steps of faith, the entire nation, his entire family is saved. If Israel doubts, if he questions God, if he doesn't enter into this journey of faith, what happens to this family? They probably cease to exist. They probably die in the famine. We probably only got Joseph left. And God's got to figure out another way to fulfill his promise. But we see because Israel took this step of faith, he literally brought salvation to his whole family. God used the faith of one individual, of one man to save and radically change an entire nation. And we see that theme throughout the scriptures. It's absolutely amazing. Let me point you to a couple verses in Ezekiel chapter 22. In Ezekiel chapter 22, says this, look at verse 30. It says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall, and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. So we see God, he's searching for this man that would stand in the gap on the Lord's behalf, that would be that leader that would shape the nation. And in this time period, it's so dark. This is during the Babylonian exile. He could find no man. But we see in other scriptures, there are certain times where he does find one man that radically ends up shaping and changing a nation. For example, if you look at 1 Samuel in the beginning, there's this dark, dark time in Israel and the leaders are corrupt and uh, there's there's a, a lack of communication and conversation with the Lord and all these different things are going on in Israel at the time. And God raises up this one man, Samuel, at this dark time in a nation that was dedicated to the Lord. And God ended up using this one man. He ends up anointing David, but he does a lot to shape, to change this nation, to bring it from darkness to light. What's the point? Just like Jacob, God will use one man's faith to radically change many people, to bring many people to salvation literally change a nation through one man that's an astounding thing but that's exactly what we see in this text picking it up in genesis chapter 46 verse 8 now these were the names of the children of israel 
Jacob and his sons. Don't fall asleep during this part, okay? We're going to read a nice little chunk. <clears throat> Who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanak, Palu, Lord forgive me in my pronunciation of these names, Hezron, Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul. The son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shemron. Now, we see Job here. You know there's the book of Job. Some will speculate and say, this is the Job from the book of Job. We don't really know, okay? There could have been more than one person named Job. There's no way of telling. I'm just putting it out there. We can't prove it. Verse 14. The sons of Zebulun were Seared, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons, and his daughters were 33. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shani, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Esui, Berea, and Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Berea were Hebar and Melchiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom as Asenath's the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppim, Huppim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. Fourteen persons in all. The son of Dan was Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jezeel, Gani, Jezer, and Shilam. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. And the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's wives, were sixty, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Okay, there's a lot of different things about the numbers of people that came with Israel uh, to Egypt. You see the number 66, you see the number 70, you see Stephen later on says 75. Okay, there can be some confusion. Um, honestly, it's really not that important. We see different people are bringing up different numbers for different reasons. Some of them are counting Joseph's family. Some of them aren't. Apparently, it seems that perhaps some people might have died along the journey. Okay, so there's a lot of speculation. The Bible isn't contradicting itself. Okay, it's just giving us specific numbers and not filling in all the gaps of why the different numbers are different. Okay, still inspired by the Lord. The, the amazing thing about the numbers, I think this is the most profound thing. We see... That there's 70, let's say about 70 people that come with Israel to the nation of the Egyptians. Okay? In 430 years, it's going to go from 70 people to 2 million. Okay? This is crazy. This is astonishing. Already, Abraham and his descendants have been around uh, at this point. Uh, they've been around for 215 years. Okay? In 215 years, goes from Abraham and Sarah to 70 people. 430 years later, it goes to 2 million people. That's supernatural growth. That's not a natural thing. What's amazing about this is that God chose to, uh, to, to bless them and to make them a great nation in Egypt. Why? Well, we talked about this in the past, but we know there was so much corruption and idolatry that was going on uh, in Canaan. And he didn't want his people to get sucked up in that idolatry. So during those 213 years, he doesn't make them this great nation. He waits till they're in Egypt where the Egyptians won't have anything to do with them. They set them apart. They live in Goshen. And when they're set apart in a community that they can grow and thrive together where they're not tempted by these other idolatrous things, that's when he multiplies them. That's when he grows them. It was all in God's perfect timing. And it's just, it's just 
is fascinating how he did it. Pick it up in Genesis chapter 46, verse 28. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Now we see, look, in verse 28, it's Judah went before him to Joseph. We see that Judah is leading the way. Okay, Judah had three other brothers that were older than him, but they blew it, in other words. And, and so they didn't really become the leader that their father wanted them to become. So we see Judah, he's going to get, he receives the um, that position basically as leader. And we'll see a blessing later on uh, at the end of Genesis connecting to the Messiah, which was amazing. But Judah, he's, he's the, the, the one that's kind of worthy to be the leader. So he leads the family into Goshen. And now Joseph, he has this encounter with his father whom he hasn't seen for decades. Finally reunited. Now we have to remember, for all these years... 20 something years, Jacob assumed that Joseph was what? That he was dead. He thought his favorite son was dead for all these years. He just found out on the other side of the promised land that Joseph was finally alive. Imagining, imagine thinking a, a loved one was dead for decades and then all of a sudden finding out they're alive and then being able to embrace them. Like, I, I don't even think we can really like grasp this and understand this. So this, this, I would love, I would have loved to have watched this. These two come together in, in love. This climax in this story, the father and son are finally reunited. Look what happens, Genesis chapter 46, verse 30. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Look at what he says. He's like, I'm ready to go now. Like you talk about bucket lists. The last thing on his bucket list was to see his son that was apparently dead for all these years. He said, Now that I've seen you, I'm good to go. My life is full. It's been good. I'm ready for the journey to be over. And we see soon the journey will be over. Uh, for Israel. Look at verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock and they have brought their flocks, their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation that you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock for from our youth, even till now, both we and also our fathers that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The wisdom that Joseph has. He knows that this nation needs to be set apart. He knows the corruption in Egypt and all the different gods that they worship. So he says, now this is partially true because they were shepherds, but Joseph is trying to set his family up that they can be a holy nation, that they can be the people that God's called them to be. There's a lot of amazing things in here, but we see God's people then were called to be shepherds. God's people, they always were, they always are, they always will be called to be shepherds. That includes us. We're all called to be shepherds in some capacity, whether that's the, the flock of our family or the flock of our friends or the flock of our co-workers or our church body. God's called all of us to be shepherds on some level, to grow into that. And he tells us how to be shepherds in so many different ways. In First Peter chapter 5, he says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Be an example to them. Don't do it by compulsion, but willingly. And have the desire to shepherd God's people and lead God's people. Doesn't mean everybody's called to be a pastor, but we all are called to, to tend, to feed, to take care of, of God's people. We see that was always the call for God's people. And again, Joseph tells them to say this so that they can be separated. Look at what, look at what it says at the end of verse 34. Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. 
shepherds and Egyptians in Egyptian culture were like the low of the low. They had a caste system and like you were the worst. If you were a shepherd, that was like the lowest position you could be. Why? Because they said that sheep were unclean. They are dirty, filthy animals. If you've ever dealt with sheep, they absolutely are filthy. So I can understand it. But the reality of it was that the, the, the Egyptians already looked down on the Hebrews. But now that they're shepherds, it's like there's no way any of those Egyptians are touching any of those Hebrews. They're staying far, far away from them. See, God even used their occupation to set them apart to accomplish his will. God, he uses our position to accomplish his mission. And that's what he's doing here. He'll use our position. You might think the position that you have, uh, maybe it's your job, maybe um Maybe what you do isn't like the the most highly looked upon job. Maybe it's not the best position. Maybe it's like a lowly job and you're like, I can't stand this job. I don't want anything to do with just this job. I can't wait till I get a new job. In fact, I'm looking on Craigslist and other resources every day to find a new job. But you have to remember in God's sovereignty, God has you there for a reason. He has you there to fulfill his mission. He has you there to set you apart. And he has you there for other specific reasons to teach you specific lessons. For the people of Israel, he used their occupation to set them apart. That's exactly what God does with us in this world. He calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. That we're called to be set apart from the world. That we're called to engage in the world, not completely uh, disregard the world. But we're called to, to, to be in the world, but not look like the world. To minister to the world. To reach out to the world. And that's exactly what he has them doing here he set them apart from the world that was around them now we see along this journey with jacob there's ups and downs there's great positions that he's in there's bad positions that he's in there's seasons of uh, of plenty there's seasons of uh, of famine, their seasons of loss, their seasons of gain. There's all these different seasons, but we see the most important thing is that even in his old age, God wasn't done with him yet. And he had that adventure for him. He had that journey for him. And the same goes for each and every one of us, whether you just gave your life to the Lord yesterday or and 90 years ago, whatever it may be, God still has a journey. He still has an adventure. And the same things that applied to us then in the beginning apply to us now. Who knows the works that God still has for you, that has for me, that has for us left in this world. But if we don't look at our walk with the Lord as an adventure, as something exciting, I didn't come to the Lord signing up for a boring Christianity. That was never, I knew that's not what it was supposed to be. I knew there was supposed to be excitement. I knew there was supposed to be adventure because I see it in the scriptures. And that's what God wants for all of us. But we have to want it for ourselves as well. Be willing, engage in it, have the faith to do it, trust in him, be fearless. Know that he's got us and he's with us. And through this, we'll continue on and the adventure and journey that God has for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, once again for your word and um, just how you, you still use Jacob in his old age to, to save an entire nation, God, and uh, you're not bound by a person's age or a person's ability. Uh, but you do seem to be bound by a person's willingness. God, so I pray that you would give us those willing hearts to, to do whatever you call us to do, to go wherever you call us to go, knowing that you want good things for us. You want to, us to experience things that the world will never get to experience. God, and I pray that you would give us the strength, the confidence, the faith, to, to do just that, to, to walk in whatever you call us to. We love you. In your name, amen.